everybody. This is the Wild Ass Podcast, and I am your host, Wild Ass Craig. This is episode 19, and in this episode, I get to introduce all of you to my friend, Joe Johnson. I met Joe years ago when we were both employed by other companies. And for those of you that remember the Monday morning Facebook show I did, this is the guy that was my co-host early on. On that show, Joe and I met weekly with opportunities, ideas, and solutions on everything from work to home life. We did this for months until the schedules no longer allowed Joe to meet up with me weekly. However, we've always remained friends, and we stay in touch regularly. I am beyond happy to have Joe here now to share his story. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, everybody. Good morning to you. As most people know now, this show's recorded. I'm in Minnesota, and it's 11-ish in the morning, which means it's, what, 9-ish your time? That's correct. Yep, a couple hours different. That's one thing that I never really took into consideration when I thought I was going to start myself a little podcast is uh, time changes and allowing for other people and their different time zone habits. So thank you for making the time to join me today. It's an honor to have you here. Well, thank you for having me, Craig. It's an honor to be on your show again. It's nice to be back together again. As always, likewise, of course, you are what I don't think any of my listeners here are going to know. You are a Minnesota native, correct? That is correct. Apple Valley, Rosemont. Grew up there. Grew up near the Twin Cities here in Minnesota. Tell us where you're living now. I live in the state of Arizona, the Grand Canyon State, and I live in a little town outside of Phoenix called Maricopa City. We're about 16 miles outside, uh, uh, 40 miles, 40, 40 minutes from the airport. Are you talking about Phoenix Airport, PHX? Okay. Yeah, the big one. Yeah, yeah. It's the only one. Well, there's, there's <laughs> another one because I've had to have you pick me up in Mesa, I believe, as well. This is true. That is becoming a, a pretty big hub now. Yeah, that's, that's about 45 minutes from me. All that different travel is just crazy to me. <laughs> no, it's been it's been great. I was trying to think of how long we've known each other, and I don't know. I mean, it's been years. It's been a long time for sure. Yeah, um, at least fifteen years for sure. Yeah, so it's minimum, and I think it's great. It's funny to see people's reactions when I say, you know, most of my friends don't actually live near me, like you. You guys aren't even close. <laughs> this is true, though. This is true. So I know. But like you said. Go ahead. Yeah, like you said, we've been staying in contact for all these years, for sure. We have through many, many changes. And I know I've stayed at your house. I know your family. But I want you to talk a little bit about your family. You're married. Tell us about your wife. Tell us about your two daughters. Tell us what you got going on out there. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So married 27 years, two daughters, 19 and 20. They're still at home right now. COVID kind of put a kibosh in their lives for their junior and senior years, both of them. And so that's been, boy, that's been something in itself as far as our lives. But we, as usual, we pulled through and uh, yeah, we're just, uh, they're healthy. They're happy. We love Sunday nights. It's the only night we get to eat dinner. And life is good. They are my support team, for sure. The only night you get to eat dinner, is that as a family, you're saying? Everybody's yeah, together all, Sunday nights? Yes. You know, and that's a that's a big deal to us and our family. It used to be every night there, you know, growing up. And now uh, with them having jobs and adult, you know, they're, they're into their adulthood now. 
working their jobs and stuff, they're uh, only able to make it on Sundays. Isn't that crazy as we grow up and our kids get older, how much things change and how we took for granted all that time we had with them? Oh, and every parent that I meet, you know, that are friends and family and acquaintances, it, it sounds so passe, you know, just to say, enjoy that time, but wow. <laughs> yeah, it, just, it just goes away quickly. Yeah, way too fast. But I'm blessed that they're at home still right now. I know they'll be leaving soon. I'm not looking forward to being an empty nester, that's for sure, Craig. I never was either, and we're just about there, so I can relate <laughs> completely. Let's get into your history a little bit more. How did you get into motorcycles, let alone the motorcycle industry? Let's just talk about Joe Johnson. He's a motorcycle guy. How did you get into that? Well, I, you know, I was in love with it like a lot of us were. You know, I got a kitty cat. That was my first power sports vehicle. And I drove that in the winter and I drove that in the summer. I drove that thing all year round for quite a few years. So I grew out of it and that love just grew into something I knew. My dad was a Kawasaki guy, national sales manager for small engines for Kawasaki out of Shakopee, Minnesota. He uh, answered to Japan. So he didn't, it was an office here, but it was out of Japan. So I got to be around a lot of the upper people from Japan. Some of them just spoke Japanese. Um, we'd have a bid with that culture. They, they want to get to know your families. They visited us a lot. A lot of them were Hanisan, which is my dad's boss from Japan. He would come with gifts. It was a traditional thing in their culture again. So we looked forward to him. He's like an uncle, you know, an adopted uncle. And that love for that culture and the sport uh, allowed me to finally, when I was 24, work for Massac Distributing, which was Rocky Mountain Kawasaki in the central United States distributor. So I worked for them in the 80s for just two years. It was my first real job. I remember I had to get a haircut. And then I uh, ended up working in other jobs to try some other things after that. But I eventually went to Telly's Kawasaki, where I worked for 12 years. And then I worked for motorcycle stuff. I went left Kelly's for motorcycle stuff. Custom distributor was my uh, distribution thing. Then 2008 hit, had a little break. I uh, went to work for my church using my degree for two years. And then Tucker came up calling 15 years ago this April. It would have been had I not just left two weeks ago. And I now work at Nash Power Sports Phoenix. And I'm so pumped about my new job. So that's my career in a nutshell. <laughs> that's your career. And yeah. we'll, we'll get to that. But what you had first was a snowmobile that you rode year round. Did that thing have a wheel kit on the front of it? No, it had a rubber track. You change out the stud track for a rubber track. If I, 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 I think so. Otherwise, I think I just rode it with the studs in it. Or I think that it's a rubber track anyways. I honestly can't remember, but yeah. We but it had, that, it had skis uh, on the front, and you ran it all summer on skis? Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. We just ran on grass. But oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and we just ran the shit out of that thing. I remember uh, wanting money for the first time. I never really wanted money for anything. I remember the monetary value of money to get fuel for my vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> what did you get after that kitty cat? Because those are small. For the listeners that don't know what the kitty cat is, they're very small snowmobiles made by Articat. But what did you get after that? Because they're very small. So at what age did you get a motorcycle? 
Uh, I finally got a motor. I couldn't get a motorcycle because of my mom would not let me have a motorcycle. Had lots of dirt bikes in the neighborhood that we rode. So I got lots of practice, but I couldn't get a motorcycle until I was 18, a street bike. And I got an LTD 550 and I put 160,000 miles on it. Wow. Yeah. Where wasn't that ridden? That's the question. (laughs) (laughs) I never got past uh, Mississippi, but almost all the states in Northwest, so Montana, Idaho, North Dakota. I mean, I got to all those states. And that was 160,000 miles and stuff. All the way to Libby, Montana, I drove that thing twice. That's not a big motorcycle. That's not a touring bike. So what did you do for luggage? It was old school, dude. I just had the duffel bag and bungee cords on the back. And I remember the first time I got a windshield, like 100,000 miles in and like going, what the hell was I not (laughs) without a windshield? (laughs) Highway 1 was very boring. I'm sure it still is to this day. That Probably is a straight shot across yeah. North Dakota. Probably. What did you? What bike did you get after that? Uh, what from an LTD five? Well, then I was working in the shops. By then, we had moved to Arizona, and boy, what didn't I drive? I mean, I had uh, basically never really had a bike that was titled in my name, but I mean, brought home a whole bunch of stuff. The the Fat Boys. That was a Fat Boy back then, and a uh, ended up riding a victory for a while because we had a victory demo california motorcycle company i had the um dennis hopper bike from easy rider for a little bit there that was kind of cool a little hardtail my wife loved that one um yeah just a whole bunch of different and then i ended up getting my dream bike because i love the uh, kawasaki racing so i had the crx 1200 i thought that was it I had that thing only like two or three years, and I didn't even put 40000 on that thing. And it got traded in for what I have now and still have, still ride to this day is my Concourse, my Connie, my ZG1400. And wow. that is my, my favorite bike of all time. What a great bike, too. That does everything, right? Touring, sport, it, you name it, that bike does it all. Dude, I thought it would be too big for me. You know, I'm only 190 pounds, 5'8". I mean, I thought that was way too big for me. It is just a lovely bike to ride. It's very intuitive. I, I love it. I can't say enough stuff about it. Of course, it's my bike. I'm biased. Yeah, slightly biased, but that's okay. So the one thing you mentioned was uh, at one point you'd made it to Arizona, but when was that point? What got you out of Minnesota? What brought you down to Arizona? Why Arizona? Well, I went from Minnesota. I was in North Dakota for 10 years. I went to college there, and I took the job with Massick. I'm still living in Jamestown, North Dakota. And then after that, when I came home, after that job was over and stuff, that was 22 below that winter, and I'm like, I'm out. My girlfriend was my wife now, and I just said, I'm leaving for Arizona. She was all excited. She didn't even hesitate. I'm going. And that was 1992. We never looked back, and we have never been back, but maybe once or twice. And all these years and stuff, we just love the weather in Arizona. And you can ride motorcycle all year round. 30 years ago, my friend. Wow, 30 years ago. <laughs> That's gone fast. <laughs> Where is she from? Is she from North Dakota then? Or is she from Minnesota Red, as well? Red River Valley. Grand Forks, Red River Valley. Okay, way up north. Yeah, the only reason I stayed there so long is because she wouldn't marry me. So you took her to <laughs> a nicer place and got her to commit. There you go. Yeah, I wore it up. <laughs> nice. 
Does uh, does the family yeah. ride? You mentioned that you get down there, you can ride all year. Does do the girls ride? Does your wife ride? No What's and no. No, the, the my wife stopped riding when daughter number one was born. That was it. She was just like, I, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. You know, all those negative. You know, those those thoughts that people have about motorcycles all of a sudden came into my wife with the family and everything, which was that's fine. I respected that. You know, I get it. So. Then I was kind of been solo, and I'm happy to say, as of late, we just got her a new helmet. So oh, good. She's going to start riding again now that the kids are grown, and she's ready to do a trip and stuff. So, And as far as the girls, we had uh, you know, the little buggies that we had and altering vehicles uh, when they were growing up. Daughter number one loved it. You know, Of course, I'm the dad that bought the PW50 you know, when they were born. And me and the neighbors ended up riding it way more than the kids ever did. The electric Indian I had, the pink electric Indian, I uh, bought them all that stuff. Just never seemed to, uh, never seemed to stick with my girls. The first Johnson's not to really, uh, you know, do the boating and uh, the recreational vehicle things. But you know what? It was cool because I never, I didn't knew, know anything about girls softball, dance, soccer. I never, never knew anything about any of these sports. They just played all those and, you know, I never wanted to push them into anything. You know, let them experience it themselves and make their own choices. So, and it worked out pretty good. I think I got two pretty well-rounded little girls. I'm, you know, of course, you know, they're not the motorcycle riders that I wanted, but it's not my life, and that's cool, too. Right. They're great girls. Now, when you say your wife got her helmet, she's going to get back into it. Is she a passenger, or does she ride her own? She's a passenger. Okay. So, she never got into that. But she liked, she liked riding. I asked her to marry me on a bike. We went up to uh, Flagstaff there, and we stayed at La Berge. You don't know what that is. It's a very high, high-end, fancy thing. And it was her first motorcycle ride. We drove all day. It rained on us, of course, everything. I had planned everything to go out the back door of this hotel room or go to get down on my knee by this river at the moonlight. I had all this planned out. Well, we got home, or got to the hotel room, I mean, long story short is I set down all the luggage, unloaded the bike, and by the time I got back to the hotel room, she was fast asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Just exhausted from the ride. <laughs> That's hilarious. Of course I, yeah, yeah. I didn't bring her for a little ride, so I had to bring her for a 150-mile ride. Of course, that was my mistake. Well, the mistake was accepted or forgiven, and she, she said yes, evidently. Yes, she did. That, <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious we talked uh you you had gone through your series of jobs you, your first job in arizona right was kelly's yes kelly's kawasaki jeff chapman okay what did you do John, there boy what i started out as a salesman my first job in 92 never worked in a shop never worked retail but the cool thing is mr canali who is jeff's dad he um was i you know i worked with their rep at Massick. So Chuck Dillay, who, God bless him, he's passed now. Great Kawasaki rep way back in the day. He was one of the top guys in the company. Really just a great Southern boy. And this guy, you know, he knew how to do it. And I kind of stuck in his pocket. We became good friends at Massick. So he recommended me when he found out I was moving to Arizona for the job. John, you know, Chuck was, Chuck set John up as a Kawasaki dealer. He was a car guy. Okay. And set him up way back in the day, 40 years ago. And I came in with the 
you know, I'm like, uh, I've never worked retail. That's okay. What's your plans? I want to own a Kawasaki shop someday. Oh, really? I'll teach you everything I own. Short story of it. I'll, t- I'll show you everything. Wow. You want to learn? I'll show you. Yeah. So I've, boom, blessed again, you know, started out as a salesman, did uh, everything in the store, including, uh, I wasn't a GM. Jeff was a GM always, but I was sales manager, seven guys we had at the most one time, finance manager. Eventually had to learn the parts because we opened up a deep Indian shop and we needed someone to watch the store. So I did parts over there. And that's where I started my career in parts was 1999, learning how to run a parts department stuff. And over there, I sold bikes. I did paper. I did it all. A um, little bit of service writing. The only thing I haven't done in a store is uh, rich in, in all of the positions. But I'm learning that a single line pure blood Kawasaki shop is a lot different they're running a nine-line store where I'm at now. I bet, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's uh, that's how I started with John and Jeff at uh, Kelly's Kawasaki. That's cool. So you started off uh, started off running. What was your favorite position at that store? I, I have to say that I enjoyed equally the sales on the floor at Kelly's and being the parts manager at the Indian store. Both of them, I got to see a lot of people. I think parts is, I think parts can be just as fun. A lot of people don't think that, but it's the FaceTime. A lot of people don't understand. Of all of the face of the dealership, the parts people are that. And it really bugs me that it's, you know, it's just, I get it. Sales units are the glut of your profit. It's, it's what makes the store run and what keeps all the bills paid. Is that accurate still? Still, I, you're, you know, you look at a, it doesn't matter, Harley shop or a Polaris store. Your, your unit sales are most of your money. But if you think of the time in front of the customer, it's great. They made the first impression, right? That's what I always tell my parts guys. The sales guys made the first impression. They did a great job because the person's going to come, it comes back to that store. But where are they coming? They're coming to parts and service. And parts is usually the guy who takes the phone call or takes the, the up. And talks to the person, oh, you need service, and walks them to that part of the store. The parts people are the really the face of the store. So when I get in, and I'm not, nobody thinks that I'm talking about any dealer. <laughs> I'm generalizing here. This I'm is in your experience. Yes, in my experience in my career, the parts department is probably trained, and not in every store, again, just a generalization. They're not trained and it's not, I shouldn't say trained. They are, they're trained. I love training. That was my thing. Their focus by the owner or general manager is, is not as high as I would like to see it. Let's just leave it at that. That's probably a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Just try to be politically correct here, but that always bugged me because we see the customers more than anybody else. We have the conversation and the FaceTime more than anyone else in the dealership. And that's why I love shops that have parts guys that stay, you know, the teams that stay together. And I'm pretty blessed because I'm in one of those right now. Really cohesive unit, great FaceTime, people's, people skills. They got good people skills. And yeah. that's what you really need your parts guys to have. Yeah, for sure. It just surprises me that you said there's more money in units than there is in parts. Because I would have thought that there's more profit at the parts counter than there is on the sales floor. I think that that's a, that could be a true statement. Most of the most of the departments or most of the stores, excuse me, but the focus is on the the front end, as we call it, the dealership. It's yeah. the front end. It's yeah. the it's the sales of the unit. 
Okay, so just to clarify, you're saying there's more focus on sales than there is parts, which I would agree with completely. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So you did all those things at Kelly's. What did you say you did between that and the church? Between Kelly, I didn't do anything. 2008 hit. I went to motorcycle stuff and custom chrome from Kelly's, and then 2008 hit, and well, I, motorcycle stuff's not around anymore. Let's just right. leave it at that. So you were a rep they, for uh, another distributor. Yeah, in in the same area that I worked for Tucker, you know, the Southeast Valley of Phoenix. And what got you out of that and into the church? We go to a very large church that has, at that time, I don't know what they have now, they had five TV shows that they were running. And I had worked in business management and finance, and I kind of used my degree for that. So I ran the money and all of the uh, ministries out of country for the money. Well, we just had the one that I was working with, I should say. But I ran all the money for that and, and organized the uh, fundraisers and stuff. It's really just like at the shop, it was, it was easy. It was really easy. Uh, not the money part. I just had to learn how to use all their software and everything. That was that was it for the money and keep track of it and all that. That was easy. It was fun was because I was doing events. So instead of doing the run with the Indian event, which we ended up having, I think, 800 people our last ride, I was putting together just these dinners for fundraisers for our people that our people that funded our uh, ministries, and it was kind of the same thing. So I thought that was kind of funny. I remember talking to my wife about it. I go, "This is just like running with the Indians. We we got shirts and everything." Huh. <laughs> so it was pretty fun, actually. Didn't like sitting in an office, but the people were so awesome. My church, you know, they made it easy. So they they knew where I was from, so that made it easy. But 2008 was rough on a lot of us. You know, our industry got hit so hard. So I had to leave because I knew motorcycle stuff was going away. Yeah, and then uh, Tim Walsworth from Tucker called me a couple of times while I was at it and uh, offered me a job with Tucker. The rest is history, as they say. And you were there just while you were there 14 years. That's a long time. Yeah, yeah, this April 7th, it would have been 15 years. So close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Explain so, what you did at Tucker. In 14 years, territories changed, products changed. How did you uh, adapt that? And how did you kind of coach your dealers throughout all of those changes in 14 years? Well, that's the fun part about being a parts guy. You know, I got to see all of these reps over the years. Kenny Lapp, Rick Witte, TC, and Lee Holmberg, God bless his soul parts and limited guys, I got to have all these really good reps wait on me. But, you know, everyone's got a chink in their armor and everyone does something, you know, I, you know, you'd step back. So I wouldn't do it that way. You know, isn't that the human way to do it that we judge? Sure. I would never do that. I would. Do. So there's a couple of things that I learned being a rep. One, I never thought there was enough product knowledge. You know, I was always, you know, the internet was still brand new back then, you know, you guys, when I was starting, they were going back to 99. So there was the internet stuff and you could dig and you could find out a lot of stuff. I, I would do that all the time. That was my time doing, getting product knowledge. You know, what's, what is this Jesse? What's his name? He's got an exhaust. I need to find out who this Jesse guy is. I remember selling his stuff direct and exhaust pipes and stuff, finding out the applications and everything. There, I don't think back then there was a lot of that going on. It was more about features. Type, this is the features of this product, of their sample or whatever they bring in, yeah. which I appreciated. Don't, don't get me wrong. I love that. I mean, that's awesome. 
but I always felt you needed to go further. So I was all in when I started is training the staff of the products and getting these guys to be alpha like with with one product communication, luggage, you know, chemicals, whatever their whatever turn their crank. I wanted to I want to stoke that stoke that flame of whatever they got a little bit of a know how for for whatever their background was and teach them that to where they could be a great salesperson for that segment for their store. And that's what I tried to get these guys to to be and teach. And the other thing is answering my phone. Uh, really, that's it. That's it. Those two things. Answering my phone every time someone called. I can attest to that. You actually did. In all of that, these years, that. I want to say there was maybe a handful of times that I had to go to voicemail and say, hey, give me a call. Yeah. And even if I don't answer my phone, I mean, I, they all knew that I would call them back within a few hours. And that wasn't easy to do. And I say the other thing is doing what you say was what I live by. I made that my business statement almost. Doing what you say and having that reputation of getting things done and becoming more of a valued resource for my dealers than anything else. I wanted them to come to me when they had a question on anything, be it the PNL statement, marketing, you know, what their ROI is to events and helping them plan those. Anything like that, I wanted to be a partner. I wanted to be an employee of theirs every time I walked through that door. And I think that worked out pretty well. In in that 14 years, what were like some of the major changes? Like I know territories change. So explain how big was your territory when you started? And then over the 14 years, adding reps, streamlining performances, making things a little bit more rep and dealer friendly. What were the changes made in that 14 years that you saw? Well, when I started off with motorcycle stuff, I had the entire state. I think I ended with a 185 dealers. And I loved it. You know, it was, the, it was the only thing I ever knew. I had never been in it before. And I remember the first lunch I had with Rick Whitty. I was trying to get to know him. And we were talking and he just looked at me with such this look that wasn't a deer in headlight. It was just like this perplexed look. How can you service 185 dealers? He said to me. I'm like, oh, well, it's great. I'm, you know, I'm making money and I'm helping these guys out, selling them stuff and all this stuff. He goes, you cannot be a good rep if you have 185 dealers. You might be a good rep to about 20, but you cannot be a good rep to all those. And that out, you know, and I fought about it. Of course, you know, I was young and dumb. And I thought, no way. Well, as soon as I started with Tucker, after it took me a year or two, and he was right. 40, 41 dealers, 50 max, maybe I'd say, is the most dealers that you can really actually help. The rest of them, you're just collecting a paycheck. And I don't like that. I'm not, I, don't, I like to earn my money. As soon as the guys, you know, we didn't click or anything, I, I you know, he doesn't, he, he should just get an inside guy or maybe it's my personality or something. I want to be a partner and that's what I learned. So over the years, you know, keep having changed 180 from, hey, I need all these dealers to make as much money as I can. If I stop kind of concentrating on the money, and I just concentrated on the dealers, the money followed. And that's a big, one of the biggest lessons I learned. Now, when I first got out with Tucker, everybody was going all over the state. There was four reps, I think it was, and they were going wherever they wanted. So my job when I started was to stop the going everywhere and make them into territories, each parts of the state. 
So I had to start with Tucson, and I, as I told you, I live in Maricopa, about 140 miles away. So I was driving to Tucson every day and back, every single day, for almost two, a little over two years. I drove to Tucson and back, and I got to know Tucson really well and all of the owners and their families and stuff, and it was great. But I finally, you know, I wanted to work in Phoenix and be home every night at a decent hour with my family. So that was the goal. And finally, we found a guy down there, Russell Hacker. Everybody knows Russell. Russell. And is awesome. uh, he was, yeah, he was going to work for WPS. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're not <laughs> working for them. You're going to work for, t- oh, I thought you were going to be around for a long time. I go, yeah, I will be in Phoenix. But you know this town, you take that. So, anyways, Russell got the job there, long story short. And then I got finally started moving into the area I had with motorcycle stuff, Kelly's Kawasaki and you know, the, the country club drive shuffle, I call it. A lot of people don't know that from the 202 loop to the 202 to 202 is 12 miles country club drive, Arizona Avenue. That was the most densely populated motorcycle shop area in the United States. I got that from the KTM rep back in uh, the early 2000s. He told me that. Now, some of the shops have moved. Chandler right now moves out to the freeway and stuff. But at that time, I could literally see 27 dealers and spend four days on that 12 mile strip. That's crazy. I, yeah, I was, I was blessed. So as far as the industry evolving, I think the side-by-sides were there at that, but they have been nothing but grab steam. And I thought it, I, I'm one of the guys that said it'd be over in eight or nine years. Here we are 20 some years later, you know, we started with the rhinos. Now we're into these badass X3s and Polaris razors. You know, turbos, I mean, this is crazy how much that part of the industry has grown and bloomed into this just monster. I mean, wow, it's just crazy side by side. And I'm a motorcycle guy, so that's hard. It's crazy. Motorcycles are not, you know, it's a different different deal in Florida. You know, they still don't have side by sides or Texas. You know, it's all private land, but our land's all open here. So for dirt bikes and side by sides and ATVs, we are the... Mecca. Well, what's cool about your area is you can actually jump on a side by side and ride from Phoenix to Vegas. Yeah, if you yeah yeah we street legal all the side by sides, which is another cool thing. You can ride it on the street. People ride them to the grocery store. Everything out here. Oh, and then let's let's talk about COVID for a second. The positive thing about COVID, from KM statistics that I was told, they had twenty four percent. Brand new customers never been in our industry, and they bought a side by side. Twenty four percent of their customers were brand new first buyers. That's yeah. a lot. So we were the escape for COVID. You didn't, nobody wanted to be stuck in their house, and it just blew up. I know our industry blew up, but side by sides—that was the blood of it for us in Arizona and the Southwest. It just blew up, and it was awesome to watch. It really was. Yeah, it's definitely cool. And side-by-side shops in Arizona are not like here in Minnesota. They're they're part of the motorcycle dealership, nothing like what we see when we come out to travel with you. It's pretty awesome. That has really turned our area into, well, now with the exodus from California, especially, but we've really become the mecca for the manufacturers. You know, I, I, I don't want to start mentioning them, but there's quite a few individual manufacturers that are uh, very large that are residing in Mesa, Chandler, Arizona. I mean, we're really, it's kind of like uh, Southern California during the Harley days, you know, the custom Harley 
and all the accessories and everything, how Southern California was such a mecca for all that, you know, yep. Jesse James yep. and all that. So we're kind of that. I kind of see a lot of similarities in our area here and stuff, which is awesome. Yeah, that is. Let's talk about this new gig you got. So you left Tucker to be a parts manager. You're working for Nash. You've been there two weeks now. We've already determined that. So I have to ask, are you looking forward to applying the practices of some of the stuff that we discussed so many years ago on Facebook every Monday morning? Oh my gosh, right? I mean, (laughs) all these all these things you wanted to implement into a dealership now you get to try firsthand yes and you know you and i will be talking over the years here how i'm coming along with implementing that but i will tell you that the best thing about nash power sports is the people and i believe that that's the basis for anything people just make it and this is the right group i love to see great leaders like bill nash jeff chapman you know all these guys that are historical in our industry that the way they put together people and you can always tell too because the employees usually stick around you know like kelly's i mean you got what two or three guys that are been over 20 years yeah it's it's always fun to watch but yeah it's going to be fun to put all these practices into place but right now i'm absorbing and learning i mean like i said it's a nine-line dealership then everyone's been great teaching me and stuff but the, the the people there are the best and Bill has really done a great job. Brian Kane, uh, they they just know how to find the talent, and they need they know how to find even more than the talent. They know how to find the right seat on the bus. Remember how we used to talk about that? Finding you, you know that some people are in the wrong position, and then when yep. you find that right position, how much they grow and bloom. And that's what I'm looking forward to the most. It's it's still it's fun. I love getting up and going to work. I, a little even more excited I've been in a while to go to this job right now because uh, the opportunities there, and like I said, the people are awesome, and that's really what's going to make everything fun and profitable. I remember Brian Kane. He was a he watched our show every week. So do you think that helped your case at all? I guess how would you attribute oh. your your social visibility to getting you this new position? Well, I just you know. I, so I tell all the, the people just coming into our industry, the new guys and stuff, you know, I always get the question and stuff, Joe, I, I think I want to do something else or I want to work in the power sports. Oh, that's great. It's a very small world. And I know every industry says that. I know they do. But this is a very small world. This is a very unique world. Uh, we sell toys. It's fun. And this type of job is still a business. But you have to remember that every person you meet you might be your boss or you might be working alongside them. And it, I, I tell every single, never burn a bridge in this industry. Keep your network strong. And that's really, and I was blessed too. I mean, I had got to drive around to 41 shops. So I met everybody. I had manufacturer reps, everything. What a great networking job for our industry, driving around, going to all the different stores. But I, I love telling the young people that. I go, you've just got to get to know as many people as you can. And I'll tell you, this is what I teach my kids too. Be prepared when you meet someone, be it a be it a peer or a manufacturer rep or someone you've always looked up to that you might want, you know, consider a mentor even stuff and have a question prepared. I have tons of notes in my iPad for every type of person. I even made a, you're going to laugh at this, Greg. I even made a three question list if I ever get to meet a president of the United States. No, oh, really? it never happened, but yeah, 
I mean, I like to be prepared, you know me, but have those questions ready because the quality in the question is the quality in your life. So do I you, that from somebody. <laughs> do you think you keeping yourself visible in social media helped you with Brian and Bill get into that position? You know, I've known both of them for almost 30 years, so I don't think so, but it sure didn't hurt, you know, that I was out there, you know, in social media and that. And Bill and Brian have obviously they've been they're always liking me and following me and stuff like that. So it certainly helped, I'll tell you that. Absolutely. And I think now I was thinking about this too, just starting this job. I need to grow my presence in social media and get a bigger presence for for this position because it's part of the job now. Did you know now in Hollywood that when they're it's not when they've got two actors or actresses that they're trying to go for a part that a lot of times the person with the largest social media will get the job. I did know that. I also know that if people approach manufacturers and they're looking for support, manufacturers will look for that same thing. Interesting, isn't that? Just a whole new angle on having a job. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. One thing you have always been in, you've mentioned it a couple times, and I don't know, self-help, okay, or trying to achieve personal excellence. And this is probably what connects us the most. But talk about that. What are you working on right now? And how does that differ? Now, I'm just going to stop it right there. I'll ask you the second question in a minute. What are you working on right now? for self-help, building your, your way to personal excellence. Okay, so nice segue, because social media, right? You know, I'm no, I'm no tech going low tech. I'm first one to admit it. So I'm taking a class on Facebook marketing, and this is like a 25-week class I paid for with my own money to make me better on Facebook. I'm using right now how to use the fan page, or they, uh, they just call it page now, you know, the, the page. And I'm learning how to use different softwares to leverage my time better so I can just post one thing and it goes to all uh, the different platforms. And I'm learning how to write copy, which the copywriting I've been, which those of you who don't know, copywriting is sales on paper, sales with words. And I've been a couple of leadership in Tucker back about five years ago, got me interested in it. And I'm, I'm in love with it. I'm obsessed with it. I'm learning it. I will master the skill of copywriting. I'm just going to put that up into the universe right now. And it will be part of my skill set. So with that comes, you know, writing copywriting is subject headline, headlines, getting, grabbing people's attention, stopping them from scrolling, getting them to look at your things. And that's all the social media, how I ran into all this. And that is what I'm actually taking a class on right now and learning it so I can help my position at the store become better acquainted with our customer base because Nash uses social media a lot and that's awesome. So I knew I had to do it and now it's just accelerated my learning curve. I've got to learn it better. So that's what I'm doing right now. And how do you suppose, I mean, you've been working on this for a while. I happen to know this for, actually, mm-hmm. like you said, five years. I didn't realize it'd been five years already, but how has that changed from being a distributor rep to now you went from managing accounts to now you're managing people. So how is that going to change what you're working on? You know, I, I don't, in my mind right now, it doesn't change it a lot. People are people. And, you know, the human psyche is a, is a very neat thing, but there's just basic applicable fit, uh, rules for sales. Uh, you know, okay, well, number one, if you can get someone emotional, they will buy. I mean, it's the same as sitting in front of someone and the same as and writing copy is just planning it out. For. 
it's the same thing. It's the human psychology of it. And that hasn't really changed. It's just in a different format. And I might be making that simple and someone else might think of a, a completely different way, but this is my view. And that's the way I think of it. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. I love the psychology of sales and copywriting is deeper than anything I ever learned in any of the sales training I've ever had. It's just going to make me a better salesperson and a better people person with my people skills. Sure. Because those are the things. And I, you guys, I walk the walk. There's nothing I'd say that I don't do. So I practice all this stuff on my family first. And I work with it on my family. And it has made me a better father, a better husband, and a better person. Well, that being said, I can't wait to read a Christmas card that you've written to your wife. (laughs) 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 To change topics again, because I think that sums that up. You know, it's got to be easier now working on copyright for one place than it is for trying to figure it out for 40-some different shops and trying to help them. for sure when they may or may not want to learn it, but you had, or you have a podcast or you're coming out with a podcast. What's the story there? Well, I got power sports people and products. And you know, I, if I, I've started and stopped so many times, I'm just going to keep, I'm going to keep doing it and stuff. I've got a lot of stuff on my plate, obviously learning a new position with all the skills that you need to have this position and keep track of all this products and stuff. So my, my head's pretty full again. Um, it seems like it, you know, I know it's going to be a good thing because, you, you know, it, it, there's always something coming up to try and stop me. So I know I have to keep pushing through. But yes, I'm going to uh, pick that up again. I, if you guys, I'm on Spotify and Apple. So I've only got a few episodes out there. If you guys want to listen to stuff, there's a lot of stuff about me personally. The first couple episodes doing the origin stuff, you know, I got that out of the way and stuff. I just really, really don't like listening to myself. So it's a really like fingernails on a chalkboard type of thing. We, we, you and I went through this before. I'm just sharing it with everybody else. I, I don't like <laughs> listening to myself. And you have to listen to yourself because yeah. you, you've got to make yourself better. And that's, that's part of that, that thing that you and I have such a great bond on, that self-analysis and that growth to become better. I mean, a lot of people don't get it that, you know, you run into these guys all the time in the shops. Yeah, I know. I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay, really? If you hear something a different way, even though it's the same thing, it might click. So if you're always trying to improve yourself, you can never go wrong. That's true. I get the podcast delay. You know, this one started back <laughs> yeah. in January. I have one, two, three, four on the board right now that are red, which means I got them up there late. My goal And I think you and I talked about this early in the year. My goal was to have them every other week all year long. I didn't plan on working as hard this summer as I did. So at some point, something has to give. And this podcast was it. So it went on break. And now I'm coming back. And I'm not posting these like I should be every other week. I'm playing catch up until I'm caught up. My goal is 26 by the end of the year. And you are episode 19. So tells you, I still got a little ways to go, but there's uh, two yeah. full months to get them done. And uh, I actually have them lined up now to get recorded. So I, I understand it. I understand the difficulty in trying to listen to yourself. I've added them right into my normal playlist. So I listen to all the podcasts I listen to chronologically. So awesome. when they when this one publishes, it just goes in line like it's any of the rest of them. And then I force myself to listen to it and go, ooh. That needs some work. 
but it's okay. They, I knew they were going to suck when I started. I think I even said that in the first one, but they, I think they've gotten better. People seem to like them. And, uh, I, I only tell you that to give you some words of encouragement back into yours, because I think what you got going will be pretty cool when it comes about. So I look forward to seeing it. Thanks buddy. Good wisdom right there for everyone. You got to suck first before you can make something and you can master something. You got to suck at it first. You just well, got to go out there and do it, right? Right. If I waited until I had it perfect, I wouldn't be doing it yet. Now I'm 19 <laughs> ahead of where I would be. So I'm not really <laughs> late at all. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for that encouragement too. I always appreciate you. Absolutely. All right. So that being said, we're going to lead you into the five questions. I was spinning the wheel randomly this morning and these ones that came up, I'm like, man, these are, these are good ones for Joe. So five questions. Here we go. Number one, do you have a quote that you live your life by or think of often? Wow. Good question. Which I have to go. It's, it's probably cause I'm, a, I'm an emotional person. So it has to be, uh, the one I'm always going to, to hell with circumstances, I create opportunities. That's, oh, yeah. I, I guess that's that the one. main one. Bruce Lee. I have that's not a, heard that that's one. That's a Bruce Lee. To hell, oh, okay. with... Yeah, to, to hell with circumstances, I create opportunities. I guess that's what I live my life by. Awesome. Okay, question number two. What have you changed your mind about in the last few years, and why? I have changed my mind about social media. 180 degrees. The ability, if you learn what Facebook and Instagram knows about us as people, probably make most people very uncomfortable. They know everything about us. But having said that, it's a beautiful tool to get to know people better and to expand your network. And I love meeting new people, especially when they're outside of my industry. I love tapping into people's thought processes and their views and listening to them when they're outside of our industry, as well as people inside our industry. But I really get into it lately, especially outside our industry. And I have turned 180 degrees to embrace social media. And you were part of that, Craig. You were a big part of that. Thanks. Good answers all of a sudden. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Question number three. Who is the first person who comes to mind and why when I say this word? You ready? So who is the first person who comes to mind and why when I say the word successful? Bud Bjorner. Bud Bjorner and my dad, I'd have to say this. Uh, but but you know, obviously my dad, you know, because everything he taught me is that. But Bud Bjorner, because he taught me as a coach. He was my high school coach. 1980 Olympic gold hockey team, Miracle on Ice. He was the weightlifting coach for them. That was my track coach in high school. And he taught me how how a daily routine creates your success. And that's why. Okay. Question number four. What is at the top of your bucket list? Well, I have to say right now, getting to Australia with my wife going to visit Australia with my wife. That's the top of my bucket list right now. Very cool. Trying to make it happen. And now that you have, she wants to go, go ahead. I was going to say, now that you have a job that will let you uh, have some time off, you may be able to make that happen. It's all coming together, brother. Yes, it is that. And we want to go to the next uh, winter Olympics or one of the next winter Olympics. They're not every year. So that's a tough one. Right. 
we we will be going. I'd have to say that. Actually, the way she's talking right now, it's probably going to be that because she's not real happy with Australia's situation right now. Sure, so she, she, it might, it's probably a Winter Olympics. Is I should change that to the Winter Olympics. Well, this we is your story, to. not hers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, oh, that's funny. This is a very fitting, very fitting question for you. Number five. What is the book or books you have given most as a gift? How to Win Friends and Influence People is the number one book I've given out of, of all the books. And I've given out, you know me, I like reading. So I like giving out books, especially when I find someone who reads. But I will give How to Win Friends and Influence People to people that don't read. And I'll give them a little, I'll tell them what pages to read if they, just, if they don't want to read the whole book. I'll just say, the, the, read this chapter. That's awesome. And that. Because that is the book that propelled me into six figures, without a doubt. That book helped me so much with everything, with people. And that's just people skills. That's all it yeah. is. People skills, relationships, nailed it. Uh, let's yeah. see. Yeah. Uh, that's the five questions. That's the pretty much wraps it up. Do you have any asks or requests of listeners of this show? Yes, if you guys would help me out and uh, like me on uh, Power Sports People and Products on Instagram and Facebook. That would be great. And I would love if anyone out there has any questions in the power sports industry, in my foray of this experience in this industry, if you have any questions, they would like to bounce anything off me. Craig knows this. I'm always open for a discussion if you want to discuss some thoughts, thought processes or anything. That being said, where can we follow you? You said power sports people. Go ahead. And products on, on Facebook. You guys can follow me on power on Instagram also, the same power sports people and products. I'm working man 777 on Instagram. If you just want to say hi to me personally, that's it. And that's the best place to get a hold of me. And also, if you want my email, my brand new email is joe.johnson at nashpowersports.com. Nash, N-A-S-H, powersports.com. Cool. Uh, Final parting words. Final parting words. Wow. I'd love to be something really historic in that, but that's not me. (laughs) (laughs) I can't explain it simply. You don't understand it well enough. Albert Einstein. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Yeah, I always, I would always get those questions when I, or that that thing. Do you have any final words? Do you anything when, you know, when I was on other podcasts and I never really understood what that meant until now doing the show, how some people just have their words of wisdom and that's what they share. And it's, I'm ready now, you know, when I get there. So anyways, that was it. It's pretty easy. So folks, if you're in the Phoenix area and you would like to get into this industry or even change your position, reach out to this guy. You'll be able to find them by clicking on the links below. I'll put those down in the show notes. If you like what you're hearing, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. You can follow the adventures on Facebook or on Instagram by looking for The Real Wild Ass. Of course, I am Wild Ass Craig. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you again in a couple weeks. And of course, thank you again, Joe, for coming on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, Craig.